This is the Makerspace Managers Podcast, Episode 3. I'm your host, Will Bradley, and my guests today are Rachel Stanfield and Matt Bowden from the Cedars Union in Dallas, Texas. This was recorded in July 2020, but due to the pandemic, it took over a year to release. You can also catch the next episode, where we follow up with Cedars Union a year later and hear how things went. How did you guys get started running a makerspace? Uh, so I guess I can start. Uh, this is Matt. Uh, thanks for having us on. Uh, I am currently the creative director and one of the co-founders of the Cedars Union. Uh, we started the Cedars Union uh, almost six and a half years ago. Uh, my sister and I, actually, when we both sort of experienced the same thing after we graduated college. Uh, my sister and I are four years apart. And I graduated from Savannah College of Art and Design. I studied industrial design and art history. And I graduated in 08, which was a great year to be graduating from college. Um, and, and starting a makerspace. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and so I sort of jumped out into the real world, quote unquote, um, and pretty quickly figured out that trying to continue to do uh, what what I had studied to do industrial design without access to you know the multi-million dollar shop that I used to have access to and to the sort of greater creative community that I went to school with uh, was very difficult um, if not impossible <laughs> to do in the same yeah. way that they had taught me how to do previously and so yeah the resources that are in school are very different exactly yeah and um it's a you know, it, it can be really incredible to have access to those resources, but um, a huge number of people just don't. And so my sister and I sort of came up with this idea that um, we had been members of various makerspaces um, during our time in college and in between. Um, and But we ne had never really found one that was really focused on the arts specifically. Um, and so, and especially the visual arts. And so... Uh, myself having more of an industrial design and making background. My sister uh, is a sculpture and art administration uh, background. Um, we and we, we we both have a studio together, um, and so we sort of came up with this idea of making uh, a makerspace, but specifically for the arts. And during that same time period, uh, I had been looking at. Uh, doing a, a business incubator. Um, and I had been involved with uh, sort of helping out with one. And so I thought that that could be an interesting way that we could help um, artists. And it gives us sort of a good time schedule uh, if we have yeah. studio spaces. And so sort of following that, that sort of ethos behind like a business incubator and mixing that uh, with a makerspace sort of gave us a really cool cohort-based model where we can have a smaller space, but then sort of maximize the utility of that space by having people come in as cohorts. They get sort of a really intense um, curriculum-based um, approach to what they learn while they're in the space and sort of helping to try and jumpstart their career as an emerging artist. 
And then after 18 months, we kind of kick them out um, and then they can become community members. And so, uh, and of course, in the, in the very beginning, we, had, we, we didn't know about any of this um, and we didn't know how we were going to do it or when we were going to do it. Um, but we just happened to be sort of talking about it at a family dinner one time. And uh, we were talking about it, you know, and my father specifically, uh, who's an entrepreneur and an uh, oil and gas geologist, um, basically said, like, you know, you only have so much time to really jump onto an idea like this. And my sister and I had always thought of this as something that we would do potentially down the road. You know, when we retired, when we were done with our studio practice and we wanted to do something else, we'd sort of jump on this idea. And he said, you know, why wait? Uh, do it when you're young and when you're excited about it and when the opportunity is there. And so um, he sort of gave us the initial seed money uh, to sort of jumpstart the project. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I like how you guys are, are mixing, you said, uh, art and kind of a business incubator and this maker space kind of um, program that, that is open to not just the incubator people, but also people as a general community as well. Exactly. So, that, I mean, that was one of the things, even more so than like the studio space or the tools, the community was really one of the biggest things that I missed from my collegiate background. And then I know that so many people don't even they didn't, they didn't even get that jump up. Um, so they never had that opportunity to even experience that. And so for us, it was really important to try and find um, a, a way that we could sort of spread that around to everybody and then sort of spread the costs as well. Because um, I'm sure, as you know, running a, a makerspace and uh, everything that's involved with that is uh, can be pretty colossally expensive. And so if we can sort of spread that around um, to try and help as many artists as we can. That was sort of our first originating goal. Yeah, that's great. Um, what about you, Rachel? Yeah, I was um, just thinking to add to what Matt's saying with the process of um, applying to be in our studios and in that cohort, we have a process where you don't have to have a degree to be accepted. We just want you to have um, the desire and the, um, you know, we require three years, we say roughly of time that you've been an artist and been working, trying to be full time. Mm, gotcha. um, but a, a huge, a huge point of, of what we want to look for in the application process is what they write in their letter of intent, which, as Matt said, is all about community. So we're looking for people that really want to engage with other artists and be a part of that, um, our concept and, and really grow together. That's great. So, and uh, what's your um, background? So yeah. And it's worked out really well so far. Nice. What was your background, Rachel? So I have been with, um, I've been with the Cedars Union for about two years now. So my background is in um, arts admin in operations of uh, a lot of music venues, actually. I've worked um, in uh, for House of Blues and for a Performing Arts Center in programming. But um, so I've got I've got a mix of uh, different types of arts backgrounds, um, and I've always loved that. I have volunteered with 
an organization and I'm on the board for one that is focused on visual artists called Art Conspiracy. Hmm. Um, they're a local organization here. And that's actually how I heard about the Cedars Union was um, we had an event, our big annual auction event at the Cedars Union for three years in a row. Nice. And so, um, yeah, so that's how I heard about the Cedars Union. And we opened the space that we're in now in August of 2018. And I was talking with a friend of mine who um, at the time was a consultant for the Cedars Union. And she said, hey, they're looking for an operations director. And um, I said, really? <laughs> and uh, I, know that so I feeling. was intrigued at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I had, I'd kind of done a mix of work in different types of arts realms and I was ready to, to kind of try out the, the visual arts side of, of work, of that work full time. Um, and really, um, liked what I heard and, um, yeah, just started about two years ago when we opened the current space we're in. So, um, Matt and I have kind of co-led since that time. And, um, yeah, it's been great. We've added two, two staff members, um, since then. So I believe that's the largest we've been, uh, Matt. Yeah, how many um, staff members do you have? We have four full time now. So we have myself, um, currently as managing director, Matt is creative director and co-founder. And then we have Adrian, who is our marketing and programs manager. And then we have Betsy, who's our development manager. So cool. we've uh, got a great team. And when you say full time, are your is your staff being compensated, or what's the kind of ratio of like uh, paid people to volunteers? Yeah. So right now we do. They are all the four full time are paid. We have one uh, part time uh, person who is paid, but she also well everybody on staff gets access to the community, and you know is basically a member when you become. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, when you become a staff member, you also become a member of, of the space. Right. So, cool. um, that is actually a big thing that we're looking to move toward though, is when we have the hope is, and we'll get into this, but is that we expand into a larger space where we have individual shops. And so currently we don't really have a volunteer base, but what we'd like to do is, grow and have, um, and Matt can speak more to this. This is, uh, something that he has been wanting to do for a long time, but have, um, members who basically help run the shops. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of something we're, we're looking to, to not switch the model. Like I think we'll always have some full-time staff members, but keeping it pretty Mm -hmm. much, pretty minimal and pretty much who we have now minus one or two more um, whenever we grow into a larger space. That's great. That's actually kind of uh, opposite, I would say, of how I typically have been running spaces. Um, I, I helped start uh, Heats and Glabs in Phoenix, and now I'm uh, helping run Chimera Arts uh, here in Sebastopol. Um, and uh, my strategy is almost always total opposite like there's no seed money there's no volunteers there's no staff who gets paid nobody um and, yeah. and literally <laughs> just the the bottom up of starting like as a meetup starting as an idea starting as a kind of uh attractive individual kind of uh 
like uh, project based, maybe it's talks or maybe it's show and tell or, or just sitting down at a coffee shop with an Arduino or something and, and letting that be the kind of uh, attractive force that, that brings people to a thing that maybe people uh, eventually decide that they want to have a space to uh, do that activity at. Um, So it's really cool to hear that's, that sometimes the alternative is also possible. Um, And uh, so Matt, how are you structuring? um, Obviously, you know, starting with some, some seed money is a great way to get this going, but um, yeah, it was very terms of, (laughs) I don't think we would have been able to do this without that. Yeah. uh, The, the income that you have, maybe let's say before, before this COVID stuff started, uh, the income that you have, I assume from maybe members, or I'm not sure if you're charging your, your cohort um, incubator people um, and, and other monies that you might be getting in from other programs versus the costs uh, of your staff and your space. um, How's that structured so that it hopefully balances out? Yeah. So um, our current space, which we call the Annex, we always knew was going to be sort of a test kitchen. And we knew that it wasn't, we didn't have enough rentable square footage that we that it would ever be sort of cost neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're always really cognizant of how much runway we have left from our seed money. Um, and just before COVID, I think between grants and other development, we were up to about 40% of our operating cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so any development that we can bring on sort of helps us increase our runway. But we, at the same time, we sort of understand that in our current space, we're never really going to be able to pay for staff. Um, and gotcha. so it's it's always been sort of this understanding that once we proved the concept, which was the main reason why we started the Annex, because we didn't know if this whole thing was going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, now we're pretty confident that it will. Um, so then we use that. Now, now we have sort of actuals from running the space for the past two years that we can push into a pro forma and then move towards getting a larger space because as we scale the space and add more members and have more square footage to rent um, we can then help actually fully support the project and then uh, so so like you mentioned before this is something that we experienced and um, with previous makerspaces and just myself personally being a member at other makerspaces is that the people who are sort of most involved uh, sort of lose the ability to work on their own projects because they end up running mm-hmm. the space. Um, and so that was something that we wanted to avoid by tr- by using our runway to sort of have more of a top-down approach uh, as mm-hmm. far as staffing goes um, to really give our artists the opportunity to come into the space and all that they have to focus on is just like moving their career forward. And mm-hmm. they don't have to worry about like cleaning up. Um, you know, they still clean up after their own spaces, but you know, not as much. Uh, the the staff, yeah, exactly. The staff handles everything else. They don't have to worry about paying rent or why the lights aren't working or you know anything yeah. like that. So uh, now, all when you things, say incubator, I'm sure, which is like running any makerspace. So yeah, yeah. When you say incubator, um, a lot of the way that I've heard that those work is uh, that you'll sign somebody on in exchange for some kind of um, benefit or uh, uh, equity that they might produce later on. Is that how you guys are, are getting value from your um, incubator members or how's that structured? 
So no, currently not. Because we have studio spaces, we're actually using a, sort of a traditional lease. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we get sort of that, that buy-in back from them. Uh, in the future, as we expand the project, we're hoping to have a gallery and exhibition space in, in the new space. And at that point, then, yeah, we would probably take a, or we will be taking a cut of any sales that go out of the gallery. Um, and then also our hope is that in the future, as we continue to make sort of more contacts in the commercial community and with just general, the general public, that we can act sort of as a conduit uh, to bring workflow to the artists. Mm -hmm. So that, um, you know, if someone wants a mural done, they come to us and then we can work with our pool of artists to help sort of match that project with an artist, gotcha. um, which is something that a, a, a huge number of our our uh, members have struggled with in the past is sort of like trying to figure out that deal flow and making sure that they have enough every month to pay their bills. And so yeah. we're hopeful that in the future that can be sort of a, a key part of it as well. Yeah, um, Chimera's actually tried a little bit of that. Uh, we we don't. I wouldn't say that we have quite as much of a studio incubator business approach, but uh, we have. We spent probably about a year or two uh, advertising on our website that we have kind of fabrication or or project capabilities where you can uh, basically hire an expert. Um, and what we ended up doing most often is just referring so that we're a point of contact and somebody says, I want something hand carved. Who do I talk to? And we send them on. Yep. Um, right. And uh, we didn't really, uh, I don't think we really took a cut of that or, or developed that a lot because it was kind of few and far between. Um, Sebastopol's a suburban town of 7,000 people that's most famous for its apple farms. So, uh, you know, we're not exactly Dallas out here. Um, and I live next door just for context in Santa Rosa, which is the biggest city in Sonoma County. Um, but it's still like, you know, a rural County. So it, it's, it, it's the, the, um, I don't want to say bedroom community of San Francisco, but, uh, you know, either you're up here because it's wine country or, or farming or tourism, or you commute down to San Francisco, which is, you know, an hour or two away. So, um, yeah. so we, we don't have that kind of brain draw that a giant city might have. We have a little bit more of a brain drain where people are going to discover, be discovered and find themselves and move on to something bigger sometimes. So, um, so we're kind of fighting that as our space, but we've definitely done something similar. Like you're talking about where, uh, you kind of become a community hub and you become known with a reputation for something. And hopefully that's a good thing that you can loop other, you know, your members and your community into and uh, share the wealth that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's actually, it's surprising that you say that because we actually do even in Dallas and Dallas Fort Worth, the sort of Metroplex in general, uh, we struggle with some of the same issues where, and this is something that this, at the Cedars Union, we're really trying to combat. We have uh, a huge number of really prestigious um, art programs from like a collegiate level here in Dallas. Um, mm -hmm. And there's still that sort of brain drain where people, artists especially, feel that in order to be successful, they need to move. Um, you know, when they're done with their school, they move to L.A. or they move to New York or to Miami or even to Houston here in Texas or San Antonio, mm -hmm. where they feel like the arts are more supported. 
And so yeah. even here in Dallas, we, we, we have that issue. And that is something that we struggle with trying to like keep people here and make sure that artists are supported in their community and have the resources that they need to succeed. Yeah. Well, and even in Phoenix too, um, I, I was constantly fighting that kind of thing as well because, uh, Phoenix and Dallas both are kind of, you know, Southwest-ish, kind of uh, mm-hmm. hotter temperature, not exactly next to the the ocean, you know, kind of places. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think Phoenix has a big identity crisis, actually. Like Dallas has, you know, its its own stuff and, and um, its own thing going. Phoenix, as far as I can tell from the, I'd say, the 10 years that I was there, uh, was kind of invented in like the sixties when everybody thought that real estate investment was a good idea mm-hmm. and just <laughs> built just this giant LA style sprawl. And they're like, ta-da, we have a city and completely did not do anything with it as far as I'm concerned. So like what you, what you have in terms of culture is the kind of the, the underbelly of the service workers and the people trying to survive in the you know, uh, Native American and, and uh, Latino communities, like trying to use this um, to not completely drown. <laughs> yeah. um, so right. I think a big thing holding a lot of Phoenicians together is trying to get ahead somehow. Um, it, it's, a, it's a big city. It's really cheap to live there uh, compared to other places. And it's got a lot of opportunity and it's 110, you know? So um, (laughs) I think that's really what unites a lot of Phoenix people. But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, Hollywood is where movies are made, you know? And and, um, Seattle is where Microsoft is headquartered and and Amazon. So like whatever industry you're in, at some point, uh, there's going to be that draw. And I think what I'm seeing now that I'm 34 and trying to actually afford a house and stuff, I'm seeing that, um, you know, maybe there's a cycle there of you get out of, uh, out of college or high school and you want to go to the big city and you want to see the lights and maybe that lasts for a time, but maybe it's not permanent because making it in the big city isn't always that easy. And maybe you just want to do your art in peace or something like that. Yeah. So you, we might see like a kind of a, a cycle where the, the 30, 40 year olds are coming back and <laughs> trying to balance a kid and a career or something like that. Um, right. But we yeah. actually started uh, uh, heat sink in Phoenix with a very similar idea as, as you guys were, we were fresh out of college and we had no resources and we're like, well, let's make these resources. So yep. trying to make those available to everybody now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask some of the questions that you um, raised to me in your initial contact with me, um, asking about being a 501c3, which both uh, both of my previous spaces are, um, and has studios and has a maker approach. Um, so I can talk all day about 501c3 stuff, but I'm kind of curious with you guys, are you, are you actually kind of integrating the maker and um, studio aspect in terms of like, uh, and I'll pose this to Rachel. Um, are we talking like Arduino wearable electronics, people programming Python in the same space that somebody's doing painting or how, <laughs> you know, how integrated are you talking? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of 
where we're, uh, what a lot of our discussions lie around right now is in our smaller space, we only have room for so much. So we have a wood shop um, and then we have uh, some equipment for printmaking. um, And then we have um, a sewing machine, a couple of sewing machines, and we have two tech labs that are one for PC, one for Mac users. And we have um, some 3D printers, um, a vinyl cutter, and uh, those computers are stocked full of um, software for our artists to use. So because of what we offer right now, I think we get a lot of 2D artists and painters, and we do get some 3D artists. We get, um, we've had at least well, we've had a couple um, sculpture artists, but right now we don't have kilns, right? So mm-hmm. we don't have um, a metal shop or anything like that. So the part of the reason that we want this larger space is to truly become uh, more of that maker space with um, the fine arts studio artists. And we've actually found that even you know painters are really interested in learning in our wood shop and they you know they have a lot that they can build in there they can build their panels they can they can build um like things to uh ship their work um they can build frames so there's they um really enjoy having that space too so i think in the in the long run we that's part of why we have the studio artist memberships and then we also have our community memberships and so we will want to have more of the um maker space type i'll say coming in that don't necessarily need a studio but they want to use our shops and so our goal is to have quite a range of membership types um, Mm -hmm. so we can appeal to, you know, the people that are wanting to come in for just a day pass or um, a month up to having, you know, committing more like a gym where you just have this ongoing membership uh, for a year or two years. And so I would be interested. I know that was some of my questions for you Mm -hmm. uh, were membership type questions Um, because we're trying to work that out with right now we have two basic types of memberships, but, but we'd like to, um, grow, grow those and, and appeal to, uh, more creative types and and makers. Yeah. What, what is that question? Um, so I, I remembered that you have, uh, different types of, I'm, I'm actually trying to remember now, but you have different types of uh, passes for mm-hmm. artists and or for your your members and I'm wondering if you have had uh, like what's been your most popular um, type of membership and because we kind of go back and forth with having a day pass because we have to train everyone on uh, right. tools and equipment so it's like well is the day pass even really worth it or mm-hmm. do we just, you know, have those those monthly ones? Yeah, so we've struggled with the idea of a day pass too, and you're completely right. Uh, what I realized when I was doing the space in Phoenix, which was uh, much more 
I call it kind of like anarchist, hippie, libertarian, whatever. It wasn't really that, but we tried to experiment with that um, as, as much as possible. And uh, what I ended up doing was I divided this topic of receiving money and giving access into kind of its core components so that we could really talk about what we're really examining because there's a lot that goes into this. When, when you say I'm a member of a workshop, that conjures probably 10 different ideas of what that relationship looks like in any random person's head. And you have to nail down what those really are uh, because a lot of these spaces are very unique and doing things in a way that haven't been done before and maybe changing over time. So uh, I break it into, we have to trust that when somebody comes in to use a tool that they're not going to hurt themselves or hurt the tool or create a mess. Mm -hmm. We have to um, know that uh, we're going to be able to pay the rent. We want people to have some skin in the game, whether it's volunteering or uh, commitment or that they're paying us money. Um, knowing who they are is a good idea so that if they're just kind of random people off the street that um, that we have some kind of recourse if something goes wrong or if they end up in the ER, who do we call? You know, that kind of stuff, identifying. Um, and there's probably a couple more that I'm totally missing, but or also, yeah, uh, uh, are you able to come in and use the space at any time, however you want? Can you use any tool, however you want? What are the barriers that we're putting? So in Phoenix, to turn things completely upside down, uh, you can pay Heat Sync Labs money. That's great. Congratulations, you're a member. You gave us money. Thank you so much. That doesn't actually get you anything. Uh, we still have public hours where anybody off the street can come in and maybe they use some tools under supervision or maybe they hang out and maybe some people are paying us money and maybe they're not. When you want to get access, hopefully you've hung around a long enough time that uh, we can put it to a vote during our, I think, bi-weekly community meeting. And if people know you and trust you, then they'll say, yes, this person deserves access. And then you get an RFID card. And that's actually a 24-7 RFID card with like no supervision. Do you then get to use any tool? No, there's, I think, meetups that uh, you can attend. So there's maybe a free laser cutting meetup every week or every couple of weeks. You show up there, we run you through it, and now you're good to go if that person says that you're indeed good to go. And there's a whole kind of like digital back end of how do we actually track that this person has this sort of access uh, even if the person who's in the space watching you now is not the same person that knows that you're signed off on that tool or whatever. So um, that's actually been a big pro uh, program for us is is trying to make a new type of software, membership management kind of hackerspace, makerspace software um, that can actually accommodate that because uh, not a lot of software really allows you to put in the appropriate data and controls of that data to show the right people the right info without contaminating it and all that stuff. So um, that's one way of doing it. Uh, and at Chimera, um, we I think we tried to go a little bit of the prosumer route where we were getting like really good tools for good people who know what they're doing and are going to make money and they're going to do a good job. And, you know, we're going to do everything on the up and up. 
And um, I think that experiment is currently in the process of not showing success because just the number, you know, when you're talking about a, a town of 7,000 people next to a town of 150 or maybe it's, maybe it's 300, a couple hundred thousand people, uh, you're just not going to get the raw numbers of money and people that are going to qualify for this kind of like advanced thing. So I'm in the process of taking it down to be a lot more um, of the kind of hobbyist just starting out doesn't really have 50 bucks a month to spend kind of situation, yep. but I'm still looking at it in terms of, uh, why are we asking this person for money? Why are we asking this person to go take a class? Are we going to charge for that class? You know, and, um, we're, we're currently reevaluating that right now. Um, but yeah, sometimes it would be 50 bucks a month and you pay 60 or $120 to get signed off on a tool that maybe you already know. And that was kind of that that's our, our current starting point where we're, we're modifying from. Um, but you're, you're totally right that, uh, how you structure that. And so with, with the day use thing, uh, I would say if, if that happened, um, currently at Chimera, I would make that kind of a judgment call of the volunteers, of do you want this person to hang out for the day? Do you want to supervise them in using whatever tools they want to use? Because if not, they're not checked off on anything. And, you know, it's it's not even about the 30 bucks at that point because they can easily go in and do 200 bucks of damage. I would almost say, <laughs> do you want to be this person's buddy for the next couple hours and help them with this thing for any amount of money? <laughs> um because yeah, uh, we we have a whole mem- like a new member orientation thing where we're showing you how the door works and how not to break the windows when you close them and how to mm-hmm. you know not leave a mess at the coffee machine and a whole equivalent process for each tool that's anything that's more advanced than like a hand tool really. So, um, and we have a sister space here in uh, Santa Rosa that I think is closing down named One Eighty Studios. They experimented with like a punch card system. And they had a lot more volunteers than us, and they still, I think, struggled with that punch card system because I don't think they're going to survive COVID because when you're charging by the day and not set up for automatic recurring payments and nobody's coming in because it's a virus, yeah. you have no money. So um, yeah. my my route <laughs> of, of having a community of members who is, they're, they're members because they believe in your mission and giving them kind of access as a secondary part of that, I think is proving uh, to be better for this current situation anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we've gone back and forth quite a bit on our membership program. And then also how do we tie that in with the, uh, with our development? Uh, so currently we have them set up sort of separately. Um, I don't know if that'll continue into the new space, um, but we have sort of our community members, which they pay 80 bucks a month and they can come in. Um, and we're hoping to set up a similar system. I, I think we're going to call it a guild system where uh, specific genres or mediums of art or different studios have control over the people that get let into that studio. Um, and then mm-hmm. based on volunteership and um, participation, they get a certain amount of funds allocated to them to you know keep up with the space and to buy new tools or whatnot. Um, and then that'll have sort of a better sort of bottom up um, means of having, you know, getting people to be participating in the community 
and really taking care of the space because they know that if they don't, then it's on them. Um, and so there's been a huge number of sort of lessons that we've learned in the smaller space. And I think that's that's been something that's helped us a lot um, with having the annex is that we can sort of fail quickly and fail cheap in the, in the first space um, yeah. and figure out what works and figure out what doesn't. Um, and again, you know, we've been really lucky to have that uh, cushion of having seed money to start the project. Um, if we didn't, we would obviously had to have done this in a completely different way. I um, really like that yeah. guild idea. I'm going to completely steal that and absolutely um, go for it. <laughs> try not to claim it as my own. Um, in Phoenix, we called it station heads, uh, where somebody would say, "Yeah, I'll take over 3D printing for a while." We'd write their name on a whiteboard, and now everything goes through you. Yeah. Um, but guild, I think, implies more of a community and speaks to the way it's evolved where we have these meetups around tools and a community around a tool, which I really like. Yep. Um, did that answer your question, Rachel, about uh, kind of day passes and, and member structure? I know I didn't fully talk about membership structuring. Oh, it did. It did. And um, I just wanted to add um, on that while I'm thinking about it, you mentioned software and uh, we went down a huge rabbit hole with trying to figure oh, yeah. out some membership software. And we are actually using one right now that we just um, started implementing in uh, January. And it's been really helpful for us. It's hard to say right now if it'll transition well to the larger space, but mm -hmm. it's actually a uh, co-working software uh, called Proximity. Mm, yeah, I've heard about those guys. And... Uh, so basically for us, we're using right now just the software end of it. They do have a hardware component that you can add on as um, for door access and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, currently, because in our space, we already have an RFID system set up, uh, we decided to not for now um, try to implement that like the first part of it is just seeing if their software end works well and um, so we have our members uh, reserve the shared spaces ahead of time or shared um, equipment uh, and so they go in and reserve that and that's also where we take their payments and because of that payment system it has allowed us to have more of that like you're talking about where the membership rolls over and they have to say, hey, I don't want to be a member anymore. Like they kind of mm -hmm. um, check the boxes that 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 tell them that um, that they'll idle auto renew, basically. Yeah. Um, so that's worked well for us so far. Um, Great. In space. Yeah, we've got um, Cobot is the one we're using, which is a co-working uh, system, um, very similar to Proximity uh, hmm. that we're using in um, Chimera. We've investigated a lot. I think the big leader out there is uh, Nexodus. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's currently trying to eat uh, the other people's lunch and looking more attractive <laughs> now that they revamped their UI. Um, okay. My big de determining factor is, does it have an API for everything? Because I'm a programmer and I can't tell you how many of these systems like... Um, uh, mem membership management or makerspace or um, billing or uh, what's the big one I'm thinking CRM like uh, Salesforce type systems where the API is either non-existent incomplete or just such a pain to work with 
that Mm -hmm. you're kind of, your data is held hostage through like a CSV file export or something that um, is just never going to go anywhere. (laughs) And I'm, I'm at the kind of programmer automation level where I want, when I make a new member and they've paid me lately, the RFID automatically works. And, you know, uh, the, the, the space booking and tool booking, like we actually book tools, right? So a lot of these Mm -hmm. things are like, what's the capacity of your 3d printer? And I'm like, four people. No, that's not. Okay. How do I make this? Uh, so I literally just went through last week and, and redid that whole thing to make it actually make sense for trying to book a 3d printer instead of a room. Um, mm-hmm. there's all these little things or like, for example, uh, tool certifications right now we're sticking it as a sticky note inside of the user's profile, which isn't exactly mm-hmm. integrated with anything. Um, so, uh, we, we have, I'll go ahead and plug it. We're calling it the, um, uh, heat sync labs membership API members API, um, which is the new version of something that I wrote in Ruby on rails, like five or 10 years ago. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's just a, a database of stuff and you just want people to not mess it up. Like if you, if you gave everybody a Google docs, like spreadsheet or something or Excel spreadsheet, you just want people not to mess up what you've got. That's good. You know, and so uh, Microsoft Access tried to do something with that a long time ago, and now we don't use that anymore. So just any kind mm-hmm. of database that that puts the data where it needs to go and doesn't show the data or let the, the data be modified by the wrong people. That's all we're asking for. And um, unfortunately, it takes a lot of work to, to get going. Um, so, yeah, one of the one of the nice things with our model with sort of having cohorts that come in. So we do have a a substantial number of community members now uh, for the size of the space, but um, our core group is always the cohort that's in the incubator, that's in the studios. And since they all come in at roughly the same time, COVID, uh, we actually just as basically Texas shut down um, and we had the stay at home order was right when our second cohort was about to move into the space. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that sort of threw a giant wrench into our whole plans. Um, But in general, with the cohort, they all move in and then we can schedule to do tool training for all of them. And so we sort of know that that block is always trained. Um, and then and if it's their full-time job, then they can dedicate the time to do it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then with our community members, we try it. We have sort of a, a schedule of training uh, that's just on our programming list. Of course, all this is sort of blown up now with COVID, but mm-hmm. um, community members, once they sign up within the next week or two weeks, then they you know, there's a upcoming training day that they can get trained at. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I wanted to address a couple things. Um, Rachel was talking about last time. Um, you touched on, uh, kind of cross pollinating between disciplines. And, um, I wanted to talk about how I talk about, uh, building a space organically or my philosophy of that and, and how that maybe relates to you guys. But, um, the interdisciplinary stuff where people are maybe a, a painter is interested in the wood shop. Uh, I think that is, for me, the core reason why makerspaces exist. I think mm-hmm. it's it's really easy for a metal worker to have their own shop in an industrial district and they invite their friends to do metal stuff and that's all its own thing. <laughs> but to um, find new possibilities by having the computery people and the artsy people and the craftsy people and, you know, the whatever, like surprising typewriter repairmen from, you know down the street or whatever that, that stop by can produce really interesting things that, um, you can't pay money for really. Exactly. Um, we just had a, 
uh, laser training class where we showed jewelry makers, we have a big jewelry studio here, how to engrave away thick cardstock so that then you can use that that engraved pattern in a rolling mill to impression your own designs without having to go and kind of do a, a, a bigger embossing process. You can kind of do it on the fly. And that was really fun and successful. Um, and just touching on how you, each space is kind of really going to be its own. Like you, you mentioned uh, trying to get a kiln or, or that you have um, a lot of 2d artists and I really believe in making this space serve the community that it serves. Uh, so we might have a lot of, you know, a laser cutter or a, a whole metal working shop or a jewelry studio that honestly, the jewelry studio in our area is um, probably a good half or more of our, our members in income. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just not going to be the same for everybody. And I think it's really important to be flexible and open to the actual needs of the area that you're in and the people that you're serving so that um, that your space can actually be useful in that way. So it, it's great to hear about different spaces being architected differently. Yeah. And so especially with the annex, our first little, our first area that we started, um, we started that entire process with doing focus groups and surveys and really trying to like truly understand what the artists in Dallas needed. Um, and then, sort of modeled the entire program around providing that for, for them. That's um, great. As we, as we move into the larger space, I absolutely want to have more cross-pollinization with a much larger and varied group um, of people. Uh, when we first started, th there's also, we have the reality that we have one of the largest makerspaces um, in the country, Dallas Makerspace uh, mm -hmm. here in town as well. And so at least with our first spot, we didn't really want to like try and directly compete with them. Uh, we want to collaborate with them. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the way we were too in 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 Phoenix and here, uh, where there might be another space, but it's okay to have you know a different structure, different folks. Where um, it, it's not, um, it doesn't need to be competitive because now there's two resources. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they've been great to work with. We've actually met with them and talked with them and like the the organizers of that maker space and and they're very open as well with what they with what they share and how they do things and so that's that's been really refreshing um, that's great to see so. you mentioned um covid so how how have things been going for you survival wise uh since march so, uh <laughs> well um the we had a stay-at-home order in Dallas County specifically, um, we didn't have a whole lot of guidance initially from the state level. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but we, we wanted to try and follow all state and local guidelines. So we actually closed um, entirely for the first, uh, I think, almost two months. Yeah. Um, and we only allowed access to people who held leases with studios. And that was pretty much only just so they could come get their stuff. Yeah. Um, we didn't allow them to work in the space. Um, now that Texas is in phase two, although it's been a um, complete screw up, um, but, but uh, yeah, uh, now that it is, we're legally allowed to be open, we have restarted the space, but only for members and we're not adding new members at this time. Yeah. And we're also using our um, membership management software to limit how many people can be in the space at any one time. 
Oh, so if you, nice. So if you want to be in the space, you have to sign up. Um, and then there's a limited okay. number of, you know, effective allowed signups at any one time. So basically uh, so, bookings are required and then you limit the total quantity. Exactly. Cool. That's um, right. And that, that's really helped us sort of control the, the, you know, the occupancy of the space and keep it low. And then just the fact that the majority of people who are in there on a day-to-day basis have their own studio, it makes it a lot easier to enforce social distancing. We have mandatory masks that you have to have on. Um, we've bumped up how often we clean the space. Um, staff, we have only, so we went from uh, our, our four staff members generally uh, before COVID were in the space every day um, or in our offices that are directly next door uh, in the Bodecker building, which is the, the large historic building where we're hoping to move the project. Nice. Um, and so sort of th- in the beginning, we were all working from home. Um, we ended up having, when we reopened, we quickly figured out that we still needed some contact with the members um, just because they had a lot of questions or they needed help with yeah. an issue. Yeah. And so now we've basically scheduled where every day there's one staff member who's effectively on call uh, in the space during office hours. Um, gotcha, and that's yeah. that's really helped us out with that. And then as if there is ever progress and we're you know always hopeful that there will be here in <laughs> Texas, um, we hope to start opening up for tours again and open up for adding new members. Yeah. Um, and it, it has been a struggle. Um, we did apply for PPP funds and we did get PPP funds. Oh, so cool. that um, that actually helped us a lot. That basically got us through that two and a half months when we were closed. And cool. uh, without that, that would have been a pretty massive hole in our budget this year. Yeah, we, um, we don't really have any paid employees, so I don't think we qualified for that, even though we applied for what we could. Um, we're lucky. The only reason we're still anywhere but a storage unit right now is because our landlord uh, has been extremely flexible with our rent. Uh, I think he realizes that uh, having all of his tenants leave uh, would severely set him yeah, back for not the be next, helpful long term. You know, many years. So some money is better than no money for him, and. Um, and we're smaller, so uh, we we didn't have too many people in there to begin with, and uh, haven't had to legislate too much or or do much beyond um, you know institute recommended guidelines and stuff like that. Um, we might be going a little bit quicker than you guys, but just because we're a more rural area that's hopefully not seeing quite as much. Um, uncontrolled spread of the virus. So uh, I am holding sign-off classes and new membership orientations kind of on a case-by-case, very limited basis. Um, And we're not having our front doors open for tours and stuff at this time. But, um, you know, sounds like we're we're in a similar boat in in terms of strategy. Um, And it's great to hear that you guys have the the, the budget and the assistance to... uh, keep on going did you have any questions about um covid stuff Hmm. that's a good question um i mean for you guys is is it has it been or have you seen an increase in or i guess what i'm asking is have you had any new members 
um, since COVID started or has it been kind of stalled? Yeah, like the growth, has that been stalled for you all? It's too? really funny. Uh, we had, I, th- I want to say over a hundred members uh, in January, February. And um, that was actually down. I think we had 150 or 200 a couple of years ago. Uh, that's that's on us and the fact that we uh, Sonoma County had uh, huge wildfires in um, 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, since COVID starting, we saw a trickle of, of people uh, canceling their accounts. So last I checked, we were down to 60, which is why uh, mm. without, without flexibility, we'd uh, really be in a, a tough spot. But um, I have weirdly seen more interest in uh, metalworking, welding, 3D printing, even laser cutting than uh, in a long time. Um, I, I paused 3D printing classes for a good amount of time, and I think people got really into it because of the whole 3D printed PPE thing. Um, I have never signed anybody off on our mill lathe combo and now two people are asking about it. So I think, you know, maybe, maybe we're seeing a resurgence in uh, hobbies and kind of um, DIY, maybe solo kind of activities that, that people can do. Um, So that's, that's been really interesting to see. And I've been trying to accommodate that as much as I can. So yeah, we had a, a, a fairly similar thing where we had a sort of strange, sudden, um, s- several people asking to join and we were closed, so we weren't allowing new members. And so we had, you know, the stack of people requesting to join. Yeah. And so it, it was difficult for us because we're like, well, we really want to add them on because it's really great to have new members. But, um, you know, it was really important for us sort of first and foremost to look after the safety of our existing members first. Yeah. And so at least for now, we're waiting until uh, the beginning of next month to sort of start making that decision. And then we're, we, we talk with our existing members to make sure that they're comfortable having new people in the space before we add new people. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we and... sent out a COVID, COVID survey to our current members. Nice. So that was... Yeah, that is great. Um, mm-hmm. I've been kind of cheekily telling people like, uh, you know, maybe we don't have a, a new membership orientation scheduled right now or, or don't have a, a woodshop class ready to go. We're, we're revamping our policies and um, training, by the way, because um, I'll get into it in a little bit. But uh, we're, we're redoing some of that to be more safe uh, in, in kind of a COVID situation where maybe there's not as much supervision or um, as many people around uh, as normal, um, which was kind of an assumption that we we're doing. But I would say uh, we, we don't have these orientation things ready. So if you want to give us money, that's fine. And I actually had a couple people take me up on that. And they're like, oh, yeah, I just want to support you guys. I'm like, oh, thank you. Um, so I had a couple members like, <laughs> cool. yeah, just become members and, and not take any orientations or get any access so far. Um, but what we actually did, we had, uh, we went, I want to say the two years that I was here, um, I was not aware of any incident like medical incident that required anything more than a bandaid. Um, and since March, we've had two cases where somebody was using a tool 
and uh, cut their hand enough that, uh, in our opinion, it needed stitches or medical attention. Um, one of the guys was using a uh, metal um, drill press, and I guess a, a sharp piece of metal got him. And he just walked through our space and like into the bathroom and was just kind of like washing his hand in the bathroom. And so fortunately somebody was there and kind of like followed him and was like, Hey buddy, I noticed a trail of blood. Can we help you? And he's just like out of it. Like, I don't know if you've been hurt that severe, like it's not that yeah. severe, but, but when, when, um, you know, the, yeah, you don't necessarily yeah, you're, think you're, you're, clearly your body's in shock. So he's just kind of like staring. He's like, Oh yeah. Okay. So, you know, took him. And then another person was um, using a bandsaw and nicked themselves. And um, I don't know. If so, I think somebody was around again, luckily, um, and said, hey, buddy, do you want to go to the hospital? And he was like, no, I'm just going to take care of it at home. And we're like, yeah, OK. Um, but that was uh, more incidents, you know, in those couple months of, of COVID than we have had um in years. So we're realizing that metal and wood and these other kind of tools, uh, were, we're advocating like a buddy system, like bring your, somebody from your house with you so that it's not a COVID mm -hmm. issue. Yeah. We have a, yeah. we have a similar thing. Well. Um, we were during the full lockdown, uh, if somebody wanted that, that was already a member wanted to come in. Um, we just had kind of a, a you know, a six foot masks kind of, um, enhanced cleaning kind of thing going on. Um, and we're continuing and, and enhancing that as we kind of open. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to make sure that even if somebody's not around to kind of be hovering over you and, and using a tool safely, that there's not only maybe you have a handout that you have with you to remind you of how these things work, but, um, the training that you go through maybe has a video component as well for enhanced retention and future reference. Yeah. yeah and, and that buddy system and just kind of tripling down really on what we might otherwise be going on in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have 24 seven access at the annex and um, that was one of the first rules that we put into place. Our, our main rule is don't mm -hmm. make us make another rule. I know that one. Um, which during COVID we've had to we've had to break that quite a bit because uh, just in order to make sure people are being safe. But uh, if you're the only person in the building, you can't use any of the tools. Um, so any sort of powered tool or equipment, if you're the only person in the space, um, you're just not allowed to use it. So we also recommend having sort of a buddy system, but that's been a yeah. bit harder to uh, yeah. make workable uh, currently and with COVID. We're... So yeah, we've had. I was just gonna say we've had we've had one repeat offender mm -hmm. of <laughs> of using the space late at night. Um, always the one by themselves. So you know, yeah. And I don't I don't think we've had any injuries. Uh, Rachel, you smashed your hand that one time. <laughs> well, so that, that wasn't was, tool related. No, it was it was on a gate to our door in the, the weirdest thing. So I'm the only one. Yeah, I'm the only one who said, and I and I didn't have to. I thought I would need to go to hospital or something, but I didn't. I yeah, we um. So we'd actually in Chimera, we don't have twenty four seven. We we uh, headed that off uh, at the pass before I even got here, and it's seven a.m. to eleven p.m. And we um we have some Nest cams where they go into night mode, and then if you're hanging out after eleven, we're like getting a little alert on our phone. Um, 
and we've definitely mm, that that cool. came about because of somebody um but uh it, it's been pretty okay mm. and uh so we don't have the 24 7 problem to worry about uh here but yeah between between a buddy system or the the, the tools that we're requiring um a buddy system on specifically are not kind of you know the like sewing machine or or jewelry studio or because we've just never had in that the, the issues are much less likely there. So it's really kind of the bigger spinning cutting tools that we're really um, focused on there. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So um, you guys were asking me about long-term strategy, um, other kinds of questions from your email. Um, what, what kinds of, I have a couple notes here, like long-term strategy, uh, number of volunteers and how we train people, um, managing member levels and f- access to a front desk person, members and donation structure, like how we how we structure that kind of stuff. Um, but whatever of those topics you'd like to to hit on um, to wrap this up, uh, I am more than happy to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I can talk a little bit about that with sort of our strategy moving forward mm-hmm. into the new space. Um, something that I know every makerspace, and this is just a reality of what's going on right now. Um, you know, the, the various fixed costs of running a makerspace are uh, pretty high uh, compared to what you can ever really bring in um, from membership. And especially with our focus on artists, we knew that we didn't want the majority of our fundraising to ever come sort of off the mm-hmm. backs of the artists. Um, and so we've tried to shape especially sort of our development and our future uh, income sources off of sort of other means of bringing in funds. And so one of the the main things that we're doing with the next space is we're going to have an event space on the roof. And of course, now with COVID, this uh, seems like a really crazy idea, but we're hoping that by the time we open, this will be <laughs> through and past. Um, but just sort of looking for other sort of like ways to use our our square footage in the space um and the new building that we're hoping to move into uh, is right on the edge of downtown dallas has incredible views of downtown and that sort of link with being able to have events near a place where makers and artists and creative people are functioning we thought was like a really great way to sort of tie in that space and utilize that square footage when it's not being used by our members and so that's sort of our main plan moving forward. Um, so yeah, first sort of the sustainability of the space. That way we're not having to do sort of development forever. Yeah. At least that's the goal. And Rachel, what are your <laughs> concerns? Um, yeah, I think it's um, it's always kind of like Matt saying, um, it's balancing, you know, there's a reason we are a nonprofit and there's many reasons, but we, you know, we want to be for the community. We want to be for the public. Um, but we also want to keep our costs low for the artists. Um, and so trying to find that balance where, um, we, you know, we have the ability to get grants and things like that, which is great. And we, we want those and we need those. Um, but also knowing that, um, like, I guess we're just, there's so many unknowns right now, right, for everybody. So how do we, how do we navigate this um, the next year, the next two years? Um, and, 
And yes, a lot, like Matt said, a lot of our model for, you know, the bigger space in a couple of years is having an event space on the rooftop that'll be funneling our mission, but uh, not um, not necessarily uh, affiliated. So like lots of weddings sure. and things like that. So, you know, you've got those types of events going on um, that, that have a separate entryway and things like that. So we're getting, we're trying to get creative with, um, our model and what, what that'll look like in the future. But I think for me, knowing that the fundraising side of it and the development side does take time and, and I like, I'm really intrigued by your, um, your model of, like a, a member's a member, right? Like friends, friends are friends. And so that, like Matt mentioned, that might be something we move towards in the future where our quote donors are also, you know, also have access to this space if they wanted it, but doesn't mean they're, they'll necessarily use it, you know? Um, so just, uh, you know, I, we're still new, you know, we've, we've had this one space open since 20 middle of 2018. Um, so we've, we've really had a space to develop, um, and to bring in new people for about two years. And so I guess currently my, my biggest thing is of course, like everyone else with COVID our real, um, uh, the way that we can really grow is by giving tours, by bringing people in the space. And that's with membership and with, so like our artist membership and with our donors. Um, once you, we've found that once people walk into the space, they love it, you know, not that they just, the community, the vibe, you know, overall people just get excited. So that is definitely a concern of like, and a source of anxiety of like, when are we going to be able to, <laughs> to really oh, yeah. start doing this again? Yeah. Um, but we are in a, you know, we are in a, a, a good place, a better place than, than a lot of these types of um, maker spaces. For sure. Yeah. That's, it's not guaranteed, you know, with, um, with money and, and costs and, um, and where all that's coming from. Um, as for Chimera, uh, my, Oh, well, actually, to to back up, uh, you you touched on uh, members versus volunteers and and how we structure that in your ideas. A member is a member, or a friend is a friend. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that can be a little unclear and messy for people. So when I'm when I'm going and uh, dissecting, kind of maybe among my operations team or among the board, what what are we really concerned about? Which areas do we need to focus on? And then we we package that all up and we call that membership. Um, one thing that might serve you as a 501c3 is uh, if you do have a volunteer, or sorry, um, uh, a donor um, category, that it's known that as a donor you get no access and and you're you're just do- donating money, uh, and maybe what you give them is um, make sure that they get on the newsletter so that they see the good they're doing or make sure that they get a really fancy, shiny membership card that they can show off or a tote or any other NPR kind of thing, you know? Um, but the reason for that is 
it can be difficult to people like the word member like npr member but we're using it in a different context and so the the distinction i'm making there is for their accountant and their taxes if they know that they receive nothing of value in exchange for their x thousand per year that's mm-hmm. just a helpful mm-hmm. thing for them mm-hmm. and it helps you know that you're not going to be suddenly called on to uh, get a membership card to some random person that's, that's been with you for five years, you know? Um, So however you make that distinction could be useful for both the donors and, and your operations. But um, otherwise, yeah, I'm happy to receive money from people who don't need anything from me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, so we've we've kind of started in, on that route. We have a what we call a friends group that we have. You know, people can join. They can still do individual donations and get nothing from it. But we do have two levels um, that are uh, that we've started so far, and they do receive one level receives a T-shirt, and then another the lower level receives go. a pin. That's great. Um, so, so we've started with that, um, and I think you make a really good point about donors and the the tax implications, and just kind of that that line. I hadn't thought about that, where it's like, no, we don't actually want anything from this, and, and that helps. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a really it got point. a little bit messy sometimes for me in Phoenix, where somebody would say, "I'm writing off the entirety of my membership as a tax write off because I never come here." And I'm like, what if we made that more clear for people? But um, yeah. as long as it works, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so talking about uh, Chimera's strategy going forward, uh, I totally agree with what you guys were saying. And what I've been telling my people internally is uh, I want to use what we have as resources to be of service to our community. So maybe assembling in person isn't possible right now, but... We have tools that are collecting dust. We have a community of people. Um, Maybe we don't really have money, but we have expertise, right? So uh, we've launched a couple things out of that. Um, We we launched a scholarship program, which we actually had already a scholarship program, but um, with the Black Lives Matter stuff going on, mm-hmm. we wanted to see how we could respond to that. And so we, we took our original scholarship program and stripped out a lot of the gatekeepingness that was inside of it and just kind of made it out an application like, hey, do you want to be a scholarship member recipient? Mm-hmm. Fill out this form. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that's one way that we can kind of bring people in um that that might not otherwise be able to afford or, or whatever access um and obviously during covid we're doing that on a limited basis um mm-hmm. also i created a kind of discussion board forum thing because we would never get 100 percent of our people on facebook or on slack or any of these tools but if it's our own forum software that is kind of like an email list that people can choose to be on uh, at least people might have a chance of being able to talk with each other during this time period without having to sign up for the Facebook that they hate or whatever. <laughs> uh, it can kind of be a thing that we own. And I really wish that something like Proximity or Cobot would have that built, built in, in. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. for whatever reason, they don't. We end up with five um, different pieces of software trying to get them all to talk to each other. 
Exactly. That's <laughs> my big thing as an operations programmer type person right now. Um, but the more I can do that, the more that we can actually have a community that exists, whether or not there's a space. Right. Um, and then uh, personally, I've I've run these spaces with the attitude that it's okay to fail. If this experiment doesn't work, then failure is a learning opportunity. And as long as nobody's bankrupt, then we're good. <laughs> um, so yeah. uh, if... You know, when, when I say that without uh, rental assistance, we would be in a shipping container or, or storage unit, I, I literally mean that. Like, that's my plan. If we go, you know, one month without um, adequate, because uh, we don't have a lot of money stored up. Um, so we're just, that that's that's the tomorrow if XYZ happens. And I'm okay with that. I've, you know, accepted that and, and have ideas of how we would recover from that in, in the future. But it's all just money and and that's not what I'm really here for, you know? So, um, so protecting the community and the, the people and the, the tools that I'm responsible for really, um, is, is where I'm at. And mm-hmm. we kind of always, we, we had kind of this subtle threat in Phoenix where we would say, uh, the, the people who want to make this happen will show up to make it happen. And if nobody wants to make it happen, then that's okay. And it'll just go away and that'll be fine. You know? And they're like, Oh crap, that means I have to step up. But yeah. Um, but we sincerely meant that it wasn't passive aggressive. Like, uh, we're not going to keep on doing this if nobody needs, needs it or wants it. Right. Um, yeah, lighting a fire with that subtle threat can be really helpful for development. (laughs) I try not to be passive aggressive. Um, and then, so finally, uh, our, our end game that we're kind of thinking maybe, you know, a year from now is, um, because our quote competition, actual friends, uh, are probably closing. Um, they existed by the way, because the person who owned the land was on the board. Mm. So mm. read between the lines. I think that's kind of like a gentrification play where they're like, I'm going to make this into the new hot thing and collect rent in the process and get all the right. artsy people in here and make it an arts district and then turn it all into condos, which by the way is exactly how downtown Phoenix is going. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've, so, we've had to be very careful not to be accused of that because we do own um, the, the new building that we're trying to move into. So, yeah, uh, yeah. And, we're um, making sure we don't buy any other property in the neighborhood. <laughs> well, and and like, like, are you serving the neighbors in right. that neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or are you serving the people in the suburbs who fly in, you know? Exactly. So, um, but anyway, we might be uh, moving closer to Santa Rosa because we don't have that you know, the, 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 the boundary lines are no longer drawn and, and we have a, a community of people that might be better served if we were closer to them and mm. not be paying 5,700 bucks a month for 3000 square feet. So, um, we, we have that in our mind, but we're not sure if we're going to do that. And it really entirely depends on how it works out with the current landlord. You know, if he's going to bend over backwards for us, maybe we don't need to move that quickly. But um, there is, you know, two orders of magnitude more people uh, if we got closer to that city center, which is a really nice kind of, I would almost say needs to be gentrified kind of area. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's plenty of places we can build housing and and this place is already in the process of kind of like reliving its historical roots that we could be a part of. So um, cool. that's, that's what's on our horizon. Mm. Sounds like a good plan. 
crossing our fingers. We we made it up on, you know, at the back of a napkin. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. We know how that goes. Cool. Well, um, was there anything else that you guys wanted to talk about before we wrapped up? I think I'm good. It was really helpful. Um, you answered all my questions. Well, thank you guys so much. I hope to see what you guys are up to in the future and uh, talk to you guys again. Uh, What was um, the name of your space and and website uh, for people who are interested in? So uh, the name of our space is the Cedars Union, and it's the cedarsunion.org. Thanks for listening. Please visit the website makerspacemanagers.com for resources and to subscribe to the next episode where we follow up with Cedars Union in 2021.